Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Let's hear the word of God as it is written for us in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have is your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we pray this morning that my sinful lips and our sinful hearts will be overruled by your Holy Spirit through your word, so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here the Apostle Paul continues on his theme of unity and love within the Church of Rome. The first verse of our text points back to what immediately precedes it, which was a simple declaration of what is ahead, of what is coming, which is the judgment seat of God. What immediately precedes the word, therefore, in our text is this statement. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Now, our first verse this morning is, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. It is in view of God's judgment of his coming that we are commanded not to judge now. There is a proper time for everything. And now isn't the proper time for judgment concerning what another man eats or drinks. Our orientation is not to be passing judgment on others in the body of Christ, but rather not to cause another brother adopted by God to fall, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in his path. Now, 
simply stated, we are to reverse ourselves from offense to defense. Rather than trying to condemn our brother in Christ, we are to defend him. And this is, of course, what we do when we are solicitous towards others' eating habits. If a child has a peanut allergy, we don't give them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Or, if it's an adult, we don't feed them Algerian chicken. We wouldn't think of harming them through food, and so we ought not to think of harming our adult brothers and sisters in Christ through food, but also through all things which Scripture is not clear on. And this even when our weaker brother thinks and argues that Scripture is in fact clear on them. Our love for our Heavenly Father and for those brothers and sisters that he has adopted is to overwhelm and remove our natural desire to show ourselves superior to them. Now, I know none of us have that problem. None of us want to be superior and get a leg up on anyone. We're so humble and meek and so accepting. I had never read this before in the Bible until this week. So I guess I'd never read the Bible before. But I came across this in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Whoa. (laughs) That kind of put it bluntly. I'll read it again. I have seen, and this was not a stupid man, this was actually Solomon, (laughs) you know. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is a result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. That's really something, isn't it? And so when the Apostle Paul is trying to bring peace to the body of Christ, they've all been adopted sons of God. They have the same father now. He accepts them. But they're busy condemning each other. They're busy judging each other. They are each other's rivals. Now, there is a way which this verse would be much more acceptable to us because it would be self-evidently true. And that is if it actually said, I have seen that every labor and every skill is the result of rivalry between a woman and her neighbor. And then, of course, we all know that. Woman, thy name is jealous. I always think of that as being actually a gift from God that God has made woman so jealous. Because men can forget that they're fathers. I have never known a woman who is for one moment ever forgotten she's a mother. (laughs) You know? Get a man one mile from his house, he forgets he's a father. 
And so when you think about, my sister said back 35, 40, 45 years ago when she was working in the inner city, she said, I'd rather break up a fight between two men anytime than two women. She said, when women fight, they will set each other's hair on fire. Woman, thy name is jealous. And so if it's said that everything that motivates women is all based on rivalry, the way she keeps house, the food she serves, the dress and clothing of her children, her homeschool curriculum. You know, we're like, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. But it doesn't say that. It says man. And that's a little bit hard for us to swallow because men are supposed to be above that kind of stuff, you know? That was left back in the playground in junior high school. That was four square. Rivalry. You know, that's for men that like sports. But I don't, I don't get into sports because I've gotten past that. You know, I, I'm not interested in competition and rivalry. Especially Musicians. Musicians are so superior, they're not into sports. They've left all that competition behind. <laughs> oh my goodness. What would IU Music School be without competition and rivalry? We must not be our brother or sister in Christ's rival, but rather his protector and his defender. We must not give ourselves to judging him and then proving our judgment is right. Rather, we must protect him or her. We must not put obstacles and stumbling blocks in his path. What is a stumbling block? It's a foundational thing you have to know about Scripture. When Scripture refers to a stumbling block, it's not simply a stone in your path. A stumbling block is something that someone has put there to cause you to fall. And so when the Bible says that it's better that a millstone be tied around your neck and you be thrown into a sea, than that you are a stumbling block to one of Christ's little ones. It's unbelievably intense for the Bible to say that, for Jesus to say that. Because that stumbling block, it is your intent to make your brother or sister or the little children of your church to sin. Not just to fall, this is moral. This is sin. A stumbling block is what makes people sin. You are making them sin. And it's a horrible thing. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is the way that we're handling our food and our judgments about things which are uh, non-essentials, things which Scripture is not clear on, by judging, 
by condemning, by judging, by parading our superior judgments, we are causing others to sin. That's what a stumbling block is. And we just, we just don't, you know... We don't care about stumbling blocks today. We just don't care. The Apostle Paul warns us not to do it because it makes those for whom Christ died sin. It's obvious this is a heavyweight blow that he is giving to the Christians in the Roman church. You have placed an obstacle and a stumbling block in front of those for whom Christ died. But we don't care. Because we are so committed to our superior judgments and to our feelings and to our our freedoms and our this, that, and the other thing that we are so selfish that we don't even blush to put stumbling blocks in front of other people. We don't even blush. We live for ourselves. We don't live for other people. That's their business, you know. If they're that weak, (laughs) you know, they deserve everything I'm giving them, right? I mean, that is how we think especially politically. We don't have any tolerance whatsoever for people who don't see things the way we see politically. Right? And that's why mass have completely divided the church. We don't care about theology. We don't care about sexuality. We haven't divided the church the last two years over sexuality. Oh, no, we have higher principles. Masks! And, of course, you know it's not masks. It's politics. What we care about is politics, and we will be very happy, thank you, to divide the church over politics. And we'll give all these arguments about why we're right. And the arguments come... Well, in our community, they don't come equally from both sides. Trust me. (laughs) I wish our church was evenly divided, but most of us are absolutely hell-bent to condemn anybody that wears a mask. That's the majority opinion in this church. (laughs) And in every Reformed church. And so what we've had the past two years is we have had a vivid illustration of the fact that we are all willing to divide the church over non-essential matters. I mean, people, you know, I don't really care if you don't agree with me. You know, there are lots of things I really do care if you agree with me. You know, I like Warren Zevon. And I hope you agree with me. (laughs) I know you don't know who Warren Zevon is. Go home and listen to him. 
Of course, I'm joking. But I very much care, as many of you can attest, to the fact that the grass is trimmed. <laughs> Anybody have facial tics right now? <laughs> oh, it took me how many years? Three years, four years to finally get our grass trimmed every week. You know? I really do care about the trimming of grass. I do not care whether you think I'm wrong about masks. And you say, well, what's your position on masks? And I say, my position is that masks should not be dividing the church. That's as deep as it goes. And so I'm spending all this time trying to anticipate what the person in front of me is thinking about whether or not I have a mask on and trying to not be an obstacle and stumbling block to them. So sometimes I put it on, sometimes I take it off. Sometimes I don't wear it, because I know I'm in a group of people that are absolutely hell-bet on condemning masks. So I take it off, you know? I don't want to be offensive. And then they say later, well, there's no consistency to what you're doing. And I'm like, (laughs) you know, that's what the guy said. There's no consistency. Yeah, I know. I was trying to please you. Is this really who we are? Is it really who we are that we care so much about our understanding of of a constitutional republic? That we'll divide the church over it? And we're so certain that it is a question of tyranny. It's like... I can't remember a day I haven't lived under the tyranny of my government. I mean, honestly, you think we've invented tyranny? Decades ago, I stopped listening to State of the Union addresses. It's so tyrannical. Every address, no matter the party, is like flattering me, and I have to look at the Supreme Court and their blood up front, and then they promise me things they can't deliver. And that's the State of the Union address. That isn't tyranny. I don't know what tyranny is. I don't subscribe to the Herald Times because I can't bear to learn more about my local government. (laughs) It's just like, no, just no. I ain't going to go there. And we divide the church over. It's, It's disgusting, people. It's disgusting. So you say, well, the Apostle Paul isn't talking about mass. He's talking about meat, and he's talking about alcohol or drinks. I say, yeah, I know that. You say, well, get back to the text. And I say, well, John Calvin on this text five centuries ago, do you know what he uses this text to address? John Calvin on this text addresses the issue of ceremonies in worship. Why does Calvin address ceremonies and worship? Because Calvin and all the reformers had to work so hard to keep the people from being intimidated by Rome so that every chance they got, they would go back to the Mass because they were sure if they did not attend the Mass, they wouldn't be saved. So why did Calvin and all the reformers say don't go to the Mass? Well, because the Mass was absolutely shot through with idolatry. Idolatry is the word that's used over and over and over again by the reformers to tell their people, 
to have nothing. If their people went to a mass when they were visiting relatives in another city, they'd find out and they'd call them in at their weekly meters for discipline. And if I even mention something bad about the Roman Catholic Church, you're all like, whop, 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 Pastor Bailey, you're so judgmental. Well, be glad you weren't back at the Reformation. So Calvin talks about the fact that ceremonies and worship are matters that we should be very, very observant about. And we should not use this text to say that it's okay to have a difference of opinion about ceremonies and worship. This is what Calvin says on this text. Don't use this text to justify yourself about going to a mass where it's idolatry and the ceremonies are evil. And of course, we're okay with Calvin saying that, right? Nobody feels threatened by that, right? Right? Nobody feels threatened by that. And so, here I am. Hey, 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 it's five centuries later. Can I please have my pastoral judgment? Please! At the very end of my ministry. Please! Right on, dude. My judgment is that it's not meat. It's not the mass. It's masks. And it's evil. And we are using our position on mass to put stumbling blocks in our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are using mass to show that we have superior commitments, superior faith, superior judgments, that we are superior to the man or the woman sitting next to us in the pew. No, 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 no. Do not use masks. You know, one friend of mine went national and said that Scripture's statement that we are to worship with our faces unveiled shows mass or sin. Are you kidding me? Oh my goodness. It's pathetic. And you say, well, you obviously don't care about tyranny. I said, yeah, I do. I cared about tyranny before you were a glimmer in the eye of your father. <laughs> I remember coming flying back from Mexico into O'Hare, getting into customs. They get done going through my suitcase, right? I have long hair, right? Some of you saw it on the social media. I have long hair, and I'm with my father in his Brooks brother starch white shirt suit, you know? go through, and of course he gets through, and then the long-haired hippie freak is there. And it's like they go through, well, they can't find anything in my, uh, in my, in my uh, suitcase. So then, would you come with us, please, sir? And so they take me into this room, right, for a secondary examination. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good thought that maybe the doper has dope, <laughs> or the dope has doper, <laughs> you know? And I was a dope, but no, I, I never had. 
But anyhow, I go in this room, the door is shut, and they're going to proceed to, to examine every part of me. All of a sudden, the door, bam, bam, bam. And I look, and there's my dad. And he's, he's banging the door. And they're like, here's this businessman banging the door. So they open the door up, and he says, you're not going to treat my son this way. This is the government, and it's, this is blah, 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 blah. And you think, you think you've invented an observation of tyranny? My father raised me from infancy to be aware of American tyranny of the government. Listen, I'm reading Solzhenitsyn's biography, autobiography. I'm in the second volume. He's been my hero my whole life. You go in my office, you'll find a triptych. Uh, it's almost iconography, right? And, and, and it's Solzhenitsyn. You talk to Lucas, Lucas has just gotten done reading the Gulag. And he says, it's America. It's where we're headed. This is nothing new. And it must not divide the church. Do you remember that the church in Rome was under Nero? We have failed the last two years because all over the country, churches have divided over masks. It's sin. You say, well, well, okay, but I mean, I mean, what do you think about masks? And I say, I don't give a rip. Oh, well, you, so apparently you think tyranny is fine. No! Well, you must not be very aware of what tyranny is if you think, if you don't care about masks. Oh, for heaven's sakes. You think I need masks to care about tyranny? Do you realize that you have no freedom of speech left in America? Do you realize that I've spent my life trying to write the things that you will never admit to believing on social media? I see your pages. It's perfectly acceptable to be a conservative reform Christian and write on your Facebook page about tyranny and masks. But you try to write about Adam being created first and then Eve. Listen. You won't do it. You will self-censor. Because you know you can say anything about mass you want and you'll have fewer enemies in saying anything about what Scripture says in the first two chapters of the Bible. The first two chapters of the Bible, you've got Adam. Eve is created for Adam, not Steve. Don't say that. It says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Don't say that. It says, Adam was created first and then Eve, and so women should not exercise authority over men. Don't say that. And it's masks we're dividing over. I know, you're sick of me. I don't blame you. I'd probably get up and use the bathroom right now if I were you. (laughs) 
but I'd hope Pastor Bailey was in the back to tell you to go back and sit down. There are things that we should divide over, and there are things we should not divide over. And it is our sin that we take the things we should divide over and we don't divide over them. We take the things we shouldn't divide over and we do divide over them. And that shouldn't be hard for you to understand. It shouldn't be hard for us to all understand. Part of our rebellion is to refuse to divide over the things God's made clear and then to divide over the things that God has left ambiguous. And there are lots of things that God has left ambiguous in his word. And it's intentional. God is omniscient. He knew what we would divide over. And he intentionally left much of scripture ambiguous about the very things we're most intense about. And that ambiguity is inspired. Think about it. So one night we were having devotions and my dear daughter Hannah is sitting to my left. I've got John Crum on my right. I've got Annie Lane on my left. And then we go around, Mary Lee's at the other end of the table. So we get done eating, and this time we actually read the Bible at the table. And I was reading from a parallel Bible that was like the NIV and the Living Bible. And so I'm reading in Psalms, and I'm reading where it talks about how... uh, I'm reading about how it's talking about how they will not enter my rest, okay? Okay. And so I'm just minding my own business. And this little blonde upstart, she just speaks right up. And she's adorable. So that makes it hard. And she says, Daddy, is it talking about heaven when it says that they shall not enter his rest? And so, I look at little Hannah. How old do you think she was? Eight. Look at Hannah. In front of the whole family, I say, Hannah, listen to me. The point of devotions is not for you to ask questions. (laughs) And she gets this hurt little, she pushes out her, okay, daddy, you know. I said, Hannah, I'm kidding you. I said, you know, that's a good question. Let's go around the table and everybody can say what they think. So we go around the table and everybody around the table has has an idea about whether or not this is about heaven and hell, right? So then it comes back to me. And I, you know, part of the reason I I had it go around was so that, like, I could think. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And so... It comes back to me, and I say, I say, let's read what Grandpa says. So we flip to the opposite side of the page and read the Living Bible. 
which is her grandpa, right? Yeah, her grandpa. And he says they will not enter the promised land. Oh, that was so nice. Dispensationalism is so nice because it just resolves all the tension, you know? And grandpa just resolved the tension. He said, no, it's not about heaven and hell. It's about just the promised land, you know? Then I looked back up at the family. (laughs) And I said, now listen, you know what happened just there, don't you? And they're looking at me with blank faces, and I said, you just heard your grandpa. And you know what your grandpa is like, don't you? And they're sort of, but they still have no idea what I'm saying. And I say, your grandpa is very nice. He's, he's compassionate, isn't he? Yeah. And I said, so your grandpa wants you not to think about heaven and hell, but just the promised land, doesn't he? Then the lights begin to dawn in them. And they're like, yeah, they know that that's what grandpa would do. And I said, but you realize that your grandpa just robbed you of something, And they're like, what? You know, it's hard to imagine grandpa doing anything wrong. You know? And I said, he just robbed you of ambiguity. He just resolved the tension that God inspired. Are you all with me? Do you all understand what I'm saying? It is not our job to resolve what God has left unclear. God intends us to be in his pressure cooker. He doesn't want to feed us cotton candy. He doesn't want to tell us that the deepest truth about his son is that he's gentle and lowly. God wants us to fear him, and then he pours blessings on those who fear him. And that's not a contradiction. In the godly, fear and love embrace. Love him. And love him where he leaves you in the pressure cooker, and you have to grow. And you have to grow so deeply that you won't even condemn people that think that meat sacrifice to idols is wrong. And you won't show your superiority to them. People that wear masks, you won't even be concerned that you're superior to them because you know masks are nothing. I mean, come on. Do you realize, so I'm writing this book on the church and then on the elders, elders reformed. And you know, there's been a big movement among Baptists who are Reformed to go to elder rule. Typically, Baptist polity has been to have a pastor who's a pope and then deacons. Now, deacons on a vacation can get you fired. Don't you forget that, (laughs) you know? But nevertheless, they're not elders. There's one elder, and that's the pastor. So a lot of these churches have been going to having elders, All right, and then they call the pastor an elder because it's all about equality because that's the highest aspiration of every evangelical now. You know, is make sure everything's equal. Let it be muddy as long as it's equal. 
that's what I think about that. I shouldn't look at you when I'm preaching. I'm going over to this side. I mean, the conversations Richard and I have while I'm preaching is like, and you, David. I'm not looking at David either. <laughs> and Chill. <laughs> Chill's the one that has both David and me intimidated, right? Be honest. Be, no! Okay, she has me intimidated. <laughs> now listen. What has happened in these conservative Baptist churches that have moved to elder rule is that all of a sudden elder rule becomes the rule. But let me ask you the question, what does the Bible in the New Testament say about officers in the church? Unfortunately, the words you read translated elder sometimes are the word bishop, episkopos. Oh, no! Are we going to be Anglican or Episcopalian? Oh, no! (laughs) You know? And so, listen, the Bible is not clear about forms of polity. And so in the book, I'm trying to get everybody to be chilled out. And I'm trying just to get people to understand that every form of polity, there are basically three. Episcopacy, Congregationalism, and Presbyterianism. And I say, the one thing that's in common is every church has elders. They call them different things. They relate to each other. Can we please chill out? at places that scripture is not clear on. Then I say, now, I am convinced about Presbyterianism, and I am, okay, you know? But not, I don't condemn congregationalism. That's almost a lie. <laughs> I'm much more sympathetic to episcopacy than I am to congregationalism, because to me, congregationalism just smells like American political theory. You know, I'll be hanged if anybody's going to tell me what to do. I get a vote. Tyranny! And so when you go to the issue of eating meats, it's not that the Apostle Paul says here that there is no truth about this issue. And it's not that we as a church, having both credo-baptists and pedo-baptists say there isn't truth, I am absolutely 100% convinced that the proper thing is pedo-baptism. 100%. I don't even have 1%. But I will grant you that it's more implicit than explicit in the New Testament. All right? And that, to me, is just an accurate statement, right? It's just accurate. Now, here's what he says about meat. He says... In verse 20, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. He says, all things indeed are clean. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that the truth of this issue is that meat is clean. It's not that the Apostle Paul is unwilling to state what he knows the truth to be. Isn't that weird? How can the Apostle Paul hold the truth in such a way that he doesn't end up denying the truth? If he, in fact, is trying to mediate peace in the church over it. Are you with me? 
Well, this is the text that shows it to you. He says, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So he says, the truth is that it's okay to eat meat. It's clear. It's clean. Remember that God said to Peter on the rooftop, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And it was unclean animals there. All right. Don't tear down the work of God for the sake of food. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. He's back and forth. You read it, and you know the Apostle Paul is not ashamed of declaring what the truth is in this, right? You know that. But you also know that ultimately what matters to him is that the church is not divided. It's so clear. If you were to have the Apostle Paul over to your house after you read him writing this, you would not have hesitated to not serve him meat. Do you understand me? And you also wouldn't have hesitated to serve him meat. Why? Well, because you would know that the Apostle Paul loves you. And he's not going to judge you. You know, there's a way of holding to a commitment without judging others for not having it. Okay? When I was in junior high school, my father grew a beard. And this was at a time when absolutely nobody other than college students had beards. Nobody. And my dad grows a beard. And I mean, everybody's knickers were in a twist. I mean, Joe Bailey has a beard, and this is right after he wrote the Gospel Blimp, and this man has no respect for common decency. He has a beard. You know? So my dad had a friend named Hudson Armitage. He was the president of Wheaton College. And Hudson called up dad and said, hey, can we have lunch? So they went to lunch. And at lunch, Hudson said, you know, Joe, and Hudson was a wonderful man. He's one of my heroes in life, okay? Trust me, but this is what he said. He said, you know, Joe, this was back in the time of beatniks. This was before hippies, all right? He said, you know, Joe, the people that have beards today are people that are that are rebellious against authority. And it would, I don't think you understand what you're doing by having a beard. And you're identifying with people who are sinful in their rebellion against, and I think you should shave your beard. Well, you know. How do you think I would respond to an, you know, my dad didn't shave his beard. Instead, what he did was he wrote an article in Eternity, which he had a monthly article. And in his article, he talked about things that were not essentials and that we needed to have freedom. All right? Now, the backstory to this is that my dad and another man taught the main Sunday school class at College Church in Wheaton. And all the important people, the, the presidents of this and that, and the professors of this and that, everybody was in that Sunday school class and wanted dad to teach them. 
But my dad had asked if he could be a member of the church. They said, no, you can't be a member. The elders board receives a direct appeal from him. When that church needed a man to serve communion because they were short an elder, they would come to my dad and ask him to come up front and serve communion to the church, but they wouldn't let him join. And so I have in my files a letter from my dad to Malcolm Forsberg, the chairman of the board of elders, where they have said no to my dad. And he writes them and he says, you realize Jesus couldn't be a member of your church, right? (laughs) So Hudson Armitage has lunch with my dad. My dad goes home and he writes an article. And in the article, he says, you know, these things are not essentials. And we should not divide over non-essentials. And he says, look, if your children... If you have sons who are teenagers or college students and they want to grow their hair long, let them grow their hair long. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Right? Well, of course, you know, I wanted to grow my hair long. So I let my hair grow. One day, Dad gets up Saturday morning. He says, Tim... You come with me. I'm going into Elgin. I want you with me. So we're driving into Elgin, and I say, where are we going, Dad? And he says, we're going to the barber shop. (laughs) And I'm like, what? You are my hero. And he said, listen, I don't mind you having long hair. But the fact is, your teachers and other people in your life will judge you by your long hair. And I don't want you to suffer from other people's judgments against your long hair. So I got my hair cut. And he's just written an article saying, don't don't make your kids get their hair cut. It was all over the country what Joe Bailey's position on making kids get their hair cut once, you know. And listen, I want you to know, I was so proud of my father for that. Now you say, oh no, he's a hypocrite. I say, no, he wasn't a hypocrite. He never backed down from his principle. He made it clear to me what his principle was. His principle was not making me get my hair cut. And then he made me get my hair cut. Isn't that weird? That's the Apostle Paul on meat. It's so beautiful because it's clear that my dad loved everybody. You know that statement, I love everybody. You know, dad was trying to create space in the church for countercultural people to not think that by thinking something other than what somebody like Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon said might be acceptable. He wrote another article against Hudson Armitage. Hudson Armitage required ROTC of the men. You had to go into reserve officer training in order to be a student, a male student at Wheaton. My dad was so ticked because it was Vietnam. (laughs) You know, my dad said it should not be a requirement of a Christian that they are willing to fight. He wasn't against fighting. He was saying Christians should not require military training in order to be in a Christian college. Why? Well, because they're Mennonites. You say, well, they're wrong. 
And I say, oh, you're brilliant. I've been telling Caleb Hess that for decades. You know, he grew up Mennonite, right? Some of the rest of you grow up Mennonite, right? I don't believe in pacifism. But honestly, should we kick Caleb out of the church because... And so listen, dear brothers and sisters, you remember what I said a few minutes ago. I said, part of our wickedness is that we take what God has made clear and we muddy it. And then we take what God has left ambiguous and we clarify it. And we must not do that. We must be capable of recognizing that there are some things that we will have convictions about that we should just shut our mouths about. The point of life is not to compete with other people to show our superior judgment. It's not the point. And you say, well, in what way, Pastor Bailey, do you yourself observe that? And I say, okay, you ready? Baptism. I don't mind identifying with people I think are wrong. I'm not ashamed of it. And you say, well, you're justifying their wrong position. I say, (laughs) trust me, I'm not. And you say, yeah, you are. I say, no, I'm not. Okay, fine, Pastor Bailey, that's that's fine. That's good on you. What else? I say, uh, eschatology. I don't have a position on the timeline of the end times. I don't. It drives Stephen Baker wacko. (laughs) It drove Doug Wilson wacko. He gave me his book trying to convince me to be post-millennial. I didn't read it. (laughs) Why? Well, because I grew up in a church where everything, everything was judged on the basis of whether or not you were pre-millennial. And I despised it. I remember my dad saying to me one day when I had graduated from seminary, he said, you know, you will never preach in college church. I was a son of the church. I'd gone to Gordon-Conwell. He said, you'll never preach in college church. It was in the kitchen. I remember exactly when and where it happened. And I said, why not? I knew it was true. And he said, because you're not pre-millennial. I learned something that day. All right. How does our passage end? Our passage ends with the statement that whatever is not of faith, are you with me, is what? Is sin. The Bible in this chapter is not telling you to not have convictions. It's telling you not to use your convictions to oppress and put a stumbling block in front of other people. Now, do we all have this in our brain? All right, I love you all very much. I love everybody, and I'm done. (laughs) Jody.